Well, good morning, Summit Church, and welcome at all of our campuses. How many of you, just by show of hands here at all campuses, really like exams? Raise your hand. You like exams? All right, well, I see maybe one or two crazy people out there. I know that our college students do not, and I know that many of them are gearing up for their midterms here coming up in the next few weeks. One of our college students at Duke, our Duke college students, told me, um, uh, he said a couple semesters ago, he said, I was a junior and uh, I needed a, a class, uh, I had an elective, and I, I needed an A, so I signed up for an ornithology class. You know what ornithology is? Study of birds. That's right. He said, I thought it looked interesting. I thought this is an easy A. Um, I thought it'd be great. He said, turns out it's one of the hardest classes that I've taken in my entire time at Duke. He said, I just, he goes, coming into the final exam, I had like a C plus average or something, and I needed to pull it up to at least a high B. He said, so he said, so JD, I studied my rear end off for that exam. He goes, I probably put more time in that exam than any other exam I had. I walk into the, um, the, the, the exam period, I, I walk in and I, um, the professor turns on a, a PowerPoint and it's uh, pictures of, of 25 different sets of bird legs. 25, he says, and, and your exam is to identify these birds by their legs. He said, now I knew a lot of stuff about birds, but I didn't know anything about bird legs. He said, I was furious. I went up to the professor and I said, this is not fair. Um, this is not fair. I've studied all this time and I, you didn't tell us anything about bird legs. And the professor said, well, that's the exam. That's the only thing that you're going to be graded on um, in this exam. And the student said, I just got mad. And I said, um, this is not fair. Um, I'm not taking this exam. And the guy said, if you walk out of here, then you get a zero on the exam. He said, fine. I'm going to the academic office and I'm filing a complaint. He said, I slammed my blue book down on the desk and I turned to walk out. And the professor said, what's your name, son? He said, I lifted up my thing and I said, showed my ankles like, you tell me, man, what my name is. You tell me what my name is. Now, that story, story's not 100% true, um, but, but it does, it does, I think, capture how a lot of our students feel. Nobody likes an examination that feels like um, doesn't accurately reflect what is really going on inside of you. Thankfully, I'm at a point in my life where I don't have to take a lot of exams anymore. There is still one that I have to take annually that I do not like at all. It is the annual physical. There are numerous reasons that I don't like it. Those of you who are over 40 will probably understand some of those. But one of the main reasons that I don't like the annual physical is the blood test. I don't mind the little prick and the drawing of blood. It's not that part that I hate. I just don't like the suspense of waiting for what those results show because I know enough people to know that I might feel fine. I feel awesome. I feel healthy and sprightly and young. And, but that blood test can reveal that even though I feel fine, things may not actually be fine. Well, the reason I share those things is because we're going to spend several weeks looking at the events leading up to the crucifixion to see how through these events that lead up to the crucifixion, God is doing an examination on the human soul. You see, the Gospel of Matthew, which is where we're going to be for the next few weeks, so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to take that out now and open it to Matthew 26. If you want to be lazy, you can just mark it there in Matthew 26, and that's pretty much where we'll open for the next four or five weeks in a row. But we're going to see how the Gospel of Matthew tells the stories of the arrest and the trial of Jesus in such a way that we see that it is really the human race that is on trial. It looks, it looks like Jesus is on trial, but... 
When you learn to see it through God's eyes, Jesus is not on trial. It is the human race that is on trial, and we are the ones that are being examined during the trial of Jesus. You see, we should see ourselves in these stories, and as we see ourselves, we'll get a bigger picture, a better picture of who Jesus was, why he had to come, and why he had to do what he did. Let me just mention um, that this is a great series for you to bring somebody to over the next few weeks, especially somebody that has questions about Christianity or somebody you were trying to introduce to Christianity. We're going to go to the core of the gospel, and so this is a great series for you to just reach out to and say, hey, why don't you join me over the next few weeks as we walk through this, okay? Matthew 26, our first exhibit is Judas. Judas and his story starts in a very unusual place. Matthew 26, verse 6. While Jesus was at Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Evidently, this was a leper that Jesus had cleansed previously. And so now he's throwing a party for Jesus. There was a woman who approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. Other gospel accounts tell us that this woman was Mary, who was the sister of Lazarus, who was the guy that Jesus had raised from the dead. Jesus was very close to their family, and she felt very um, grateful to him and, and love for him. So she poured this alabaster very expensive perfume on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. You see, this kind of perfume was a family treasure. Um, it was kept in a, in a sealed alabaster container that had no lid. The only way to get into the perfume was to literally smash it. So you could open it one time and that was it. Um, it usually was never opened. It was just handed down from generation to generation um, as a family inheritance. The text tells us that this perfume was worth 300 denarii, which is something like $10,000 today. Personally, I've never seen a $10,000 bottle of perfume. If you have, uh, please don't tell my wife about it, um, but um, I, I, would just, I would just be nervous all the time about breaking it, uh, open it. Well, this woman comes, she smashes the thing, and she pours it on Jesus' hair and on his feet. Well, the disciples begin to object, it says. In fact, I'll tell you, um, uh, I learned something this time around. Uh, you know, these stories uh, are very familiar to me because I literally have grown up around them. But as I was studying for this one, I learned something that I, I just never seen. Um, and that is that this objection right here where, where they say, hey, this might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. Matthew says that all of them were the ones asking this. See, the reason I point that out is because other accounts say that Judas was the one who actually voiced this, and I always thought Judas was the one who made the objection, but evidently, evidently, it was the common consensus of the group, and Judas was simply the one to express this kind of righteous indignation that this money had been wasted in this way. Verse 10, aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, really quick, when Jesus says that, he is not discouraging their care of the poor, saying like, hey, you can't do anything to actually change poverty, so you might as well not even try. Uh, no, his whole ministry taught us to care for the poor. What he is telling them is, this is a very unique moment, and you're not going to have me for very long, and you should be taking advantage of it. By pouring out this perfume on my body, this woman has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. 
were. Now, keep in mind, the disciples that he's talking to are the very ones that are going to be proclaiming the gospel in the whole world. So basically what he is saying to them is, every time that you tell this story from now on, you're going to be recounting how smart and insightful and perceptive she was and how dumb you were. Verse 14, then one of the 12, the man called Judas Iscariot, went, left that group and went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give to me if I hand Jesus over to you? So they weighed out for him 30 pieces of silver, uh, which is about $7,500 in today's terms. Verse 16, and from that time forward, he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. You see, the Jewish leadership didn't want to arrest Jesus in public because he was so popular with the crowds, it would have started a riot. So they needed to be able to arrest him privately when nobody was around. But evidently, Jesus was very secretive about where he was in private for a couple reasons. One is he wanted to avoid arrest. And secondly, he probably just needed some space to get away from the crowd so that he could, he could rest. But bottom line is they didn't know where he was when he wasn't in public. And so they needed somebody on the inside to tell them so that they could arrest him privately. Well, meanwhile, Jesus and his disciples have found a private place to celebrate the Passover. And so Judas rejoins them there in this private chamber. Verse 21, while they were eating, Jesus looks up and says, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Deeply distressed, each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. All right, let's talk here for just a minute about Judas. Sometimes Christians in church have this idea that Judas was this sinister presence among the disciples with shifty eyes and little horns kind of poking out the top of his head. How you UNC fans usually think of Coach K. Um, you know, he hissed when he talked. He had a parcel tongue. He was the shady disciple who slipped out after dark to smoke weed and told dirty jokes when Jesus wasn't around. But, but that is a totally wrong picture of Judas. Notice when Jesus said somebody would betray him, they didn't all kind of look at each other and say, well, obviously it's Judas. Everybody knows that. No, nobody suspected him at all. Judas was, in fact, one of the most respected of all the disciples. How do we know that? Well, we know that because he was the one elected by the other disciples to carry the purse. And you don't choose a shady guy to be your accountant. Judas had genuinely believed that Jesus was the Messiah. We'll talk about that more in a minute. So when Jesus tells them somebody's going to betray him, they all start to look around and say, surely, Lord, it's not I. He replied, the one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he'd never even been born. Now, you might have wondered how this didn't make a scene. John's account of this, by the way, says that he dipped and then and he hands it to Judas. Um, same thing to say it here. Basically, the one who shares this bread with me is going to betray me. And I used to read that and think, well, how did everybody not know at that point? Like, Dutch Judas, you know? Um, evidently, there was a lot of conversation going on around the table. Uh, it's like today, you get 12 guys around the table. There's nobody's listening to anybody else. Everybody's talking to one person. And there's a lot of conversation. And um, evidently, Jesus says this just loud enough for one or two people to hear. Then Judas, who was one of those who heard Jesus say this, his betrayer, he replied, surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus responds to him, you have said it. Judas may have asked this question, by the way, because he was still trying to work up the courage or wondering if he had the courage to follow through with this. He may have said, Lord, is it I? Because he's just trying to see what Jesus knew, um, what Jesus knew. At any rate, when Jesus says this, Judas gets up from the table and he leaves immediately to go and get the soldiers to come back and ambush Jesus. 
Now, what I want to do is I want to do two things with the story of Judas today. The first is I want to try to show you that Judas represents all of us. Judas is not just this lone villain out there that we're supposed to despise and hiss because he's such an evil man. Matthew is going to tell the story in a way to show us that Judas is you and Judas is me. Secondly, I want to explore with you why it is that Judas betrayed Jesus. And then I want to try to show you how people still do that today, pretty much for the same reasons that Judas betrayed Jesus, okay? First of all, why do I say that Judas represents us? Well, you can see it in how the story is told. Matthew does things like show you, as I pointed out, that all the disciples have the same reaction of disgust when the woman pours out this perfume on his feet. Judas is not alone in this. He's just representing all of the disciples. When Jesus tells the disciples that somebody will betray him, he presents it more as a question. He, he, He doesn't say, we have a traitor in our midst, and there he is. No, he leaves out the who deliberately. The word he uses for betray means to hand over or to sell. Jesus is basically saying to them, one of you is gonna sell me out for the right price. Is it you? Look into your heart. What is the price at which you would sell me? They understood Jesus's question because notice how shaky and uncertain their response is. Verse 22, they're like, surely Lord, it's not I. Greek commentators say the way the question is phrased implies a decided lack of confidence. You should almost read that phrase as, Lord, it's not I, is it? Is it actually me? Jesus goes on to tell them, it's not just one of you that is going to sell me out. Verse 31, all of you will fall away. They may not have each sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, but none of them is going to go all the way with Jesus. Every single one of them has a price whereby they will walk away from him. And see, the point is, a price is a price. Reminds me of the story that I heard years ago attributed to Winston Churchill. The story goes that Churchill was trying to make um, a point that England should never compromise with evil. And there was a newspaper reporter who was a a very fierce adversary of his. It was a a lady who um, kept accusing him of being an extremist and a warmonger, and he was going to lead England into war. And so finally, exasperated, Churchill says to the woman, he says, ma'am, if a king offered you a hundred million pounds to sleep with him, would you do it? And she kind of thought for a minute and said, well, a hundred million pounds. Yeah, there's not much I wouldn't do for a hundred million pounds. She said, probably yes. Mr. Churchill said, he said, well, if I offer you 50 pounds, will you sleep with me? And she said, kind of in disgust, Mr. Churchill, I'm not a prostitute. And he replied, he said, with all due respect, ma'am, we've already established what your identity is. I just wanted to know your price. Now, I've got strong reasons to believe that that story is made up also, but it still makes the point. A price is a price. The question being asked to these disciples is, what is your price? Look into your hearts and ask. Judas may betray Jesus spectacularly for 30 pieces of silver, but each of them will do it eventually. All of them will walk away. Peter, who's the most outspoken among them, will cave and end up denying that he never even knew Jesus. So again, Judas's betrayal is presented as a question to you. What is your price? 
When I lived overseas and I was a missionary in a Muslim country, I had a situation where I thought that our presence there was going to end in prison. I thought it may end in bodily harm and might possibly end in one of us dying. There was, we brought in a short-term team of missionaries while I was there to give out, distribute Bibles in the region. And to make a long story really short, they provoked a riot, a riot of close to 3,000 people that the police ended up rescuing these guys and four friends of mine and putting them in prison. Um, the, the mob, the rioting mob, took both of their cars, burned them to the ground, um, and were demanding that they release my four friends so that they could kill them. Um, I was put under a, a type of house arrest because they didn't, um, they didn't have any proof that I was connected, but everybody kind of knew I probably was, and so they put me under house arrest, and it led to one of the worst two or three, four days of my life um, because in that kind of you know, loneliness of just being under house arrest, I remember saying to God, um, I don't want to do this. I just want to go home. Um, I'm tired of this. I didn't sign up for this. I, 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 I'm not sure why I'm here. Can you just get me out of this and send me home? Um, now, here was the irony of that. I was very committed to Jesus. I mean, I was a missionary, for goodness sake. I mean, that's like, you know, top of the chain. I was, you know, varsity level. In fact, before we left, we'd done this little ceremony where we, um, uh, you know, you get your stick I don't know, you probably never did this. But you have a campfire and you go and throw your stick in the fire, symbolic of the fact that you're letting your life be burned up for Jesus. And man, I did it with everybody else. I'm like, here's my stick. I throw it in the fire. And we all sang, I've decided to follow Jesus. You know, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, so I will follow. I sang as loudly as anybody that night. But I'm gonna go ahead and tell you guys one thing, just in case you don't know this. It's one thing to stand in a group around a campfire and sing that song. Um, that I'm willing to give up my life for Jesus, it's quite another when you think people are going to show up and take you up on that offer. And I, what was happening in that moment, it was one of the lowest times I've ever been spiritually because God revealed I had a price. I had a point at which my commitment to Jesus stopped. It was one of the lowest points I've ever been in, and God used that to begin to rebuild me spiritually from that broken place. The point is, I was just like those disciples. I had a price. I could talk a big game. I could talk a big game, but when you peeled away the layers, I had a price. The question is, what is your price? You see, you might be willing to follow Jesus when it is convenient for you, but at what point do you stop? For example, maybe you downplay your commitment to Jesus in front of your friends. You, you want to be a Christian here at church, but you're a teenager, and you don't want to do it in front of your friends because they might mock you or think of you as strange. Or maybe it's just an area of your life that you just don't want to let God have control of yet. Maybe God has told you to go somewhere and do something on a mission trip, or maybe with one of our church plants, and you are resisting him. Maybe God has called one of your children or one of your, called one of your children to do something like that, and you don't want to let them go. Maybe God has convicted you of, of something like your music habits or your entertainment habits or a certain relationship that you really should not be in, and you don't want to give it up. I mean, maybe it's, it's, it's getting baptized Right? Maybe it's getting baptized. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're just kind of like, I don't really know. You know, like, um, I know that we're always talking about getting baptized, but I just, it's just inconvenient and messy and wet, and I don't really want to do that. I and mean, what an ironic thing for your commitment to Jesus to stop at the point of inconvenience. That's your price. For some of you, you know that you shouldn't be living with your, your, your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and, um, or you know that you shouldn't be sleeping together, but that's just not a lifestyle that you want right now, so you're going to keep doing it and hope that God's going to be okay with it. Some of you know that you work too much or you neglect your family. You never take a Sabbath. 
Maybe God's calling you to put him first in your finances and trust him with a tithe and generous giving and you're resisting him. Maybe it's simply committing to the church, right? I mean, we got a lot of people that are just sort of sitting on the sidelines. And you know what? Deep down, you know that church is not just an event you're supposed to show up at occasionally and kind of hear a religious pep talk. You know that you're supposed to be a part of the community. But when you really get down to it, that just feels overcommitted to you and it feels messy and it feels cumbersome and you like the freedom that goes with non-committal. So you're just going to kind of hold on to what's convenient and you're not going to do what you know God wants you to do. Through whatever it is, that's your price. That's where your commitment to Jesus stops and you sell him out. Right? Your point of commitment stops at a certain point. What is that price? All of us have one or all of us have had one. When Mark tells the story of all these disciples forsaking Jesus, which ends up happening a couple hours later in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Mark tells that story, he adds a, a curious, small, but I think very important detail. Mark 14, 51, and a young man followed him, that is, followed Jesus after his arrest, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, that's because it's his pajamas, he'd been sleeping when Jesus was arrested, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, here's a question, why? include that detail in this story. Two reasons, I think. Number one, it's interesting. And anytime you're telling a story where somebody runs through it naked, you always have got to include that detail later, right? I mean, some guy runs through our church service naked and somebody asks you later how our church was. It has nothing to do with the sermon, but you're going to include that detail about the guy running through naked. So that's one of the reasons. But second and more importantly, many commentators think that in this running, fleeing, young, naked man is a picture right, of the entire human race, a metaphor for the whole human race. Here we've got a naked man fleeing from the Garden of Gethsemane. You might remember that Adam and Eve had fled from the Garden of Eden naked, fleeing from the presence of God. And so what we have in this image is a picture of the whole human race. All of us, even Jesus's closest disciples, have abandoned him. The ultimate failure of the human race has been put on display. Jesus has been nothing but loyal to us, but for the right price, all of us sell him out. We abandon the one who never abandoned us. So again, let this sink in. Judas represents you. Sure, maybe you haven't actually done what Judas did, but that's probably just because you weren't put in the same situations he was in, under the same pressures. But see, the stuff in your heart and my heart is the same as what was in Judas's heart. You see, the Bible teaches us that the reason some of us turn out better than others has more to do with the restraining graces that God puts into our lives than it does some inherent goodness in us. Sometimes when I hear the stories of people who've really messed up their lives, some of them ended up in prison, and then I hear them talk about the pain and the dysfunction and sometimes abuse that they went through growing up, I always find myself wondering that had I grown up in similar conditions, if I wouldn't have made the exact same decisions. I'm not trying to excuse their crime. I'm not trying to say that they're not accountable for it. I'm just saying that God put so many graces and privileges in my life that I had absolutely nothing to do with and cannot take any credit for. I had parents who loved me. I had good examples of character lived out before me. I never faced the kind of poverty or discrimination that pushes some people to extreme action. I was taught the word of God from my childhood. These were all gifts of grace to me for which I cannot take one iota of credit. Do I really have reason to boast because of them? Let me say you and a friend decided you were going to rob a bank 
And on the way to rob the bank, you stop by another friend's house, and the friend said, I'm not going to let you do that, and grabs both of you by the shirt. Your other friend wriggles free, rips his shirt, goes off and robs the bank, but you, are, you know, remain held by your friend and he won't let you go. Well, your one friend goes and robs the bank and gets arrested. Can you really boast later about not having committed the crime? No, because what was in your heart was in, what was in his heart was in your heart. It was your friend's restraining grace that kept you from doing it. That's what God has done for us. He put graces that kept the sin in my heart from growing into fruition and destroying me. Yet, y'all, even with all of these graces, even with all of those, I still had a price whereby I sold Jesus. Betrayal and a willingness to sell him out for a price was in my heart just like it was in Judas's. His may have been more spectacular, but like the Puritan John Owen says, the seed of every sin is in every heart. At the end of the day, our salvation, the Bible teaches us, is solely by grace, Paul says. By grace, which means unmerited favor, nothing about you. Goodness in God's heart, not goodness in yours. You've been saved through faith. Faith means trust in what God has done to accomplish your salvation, not on what you will do. And not even that is from yourself. By the way, in Greek, that word that right there is written in a way that it points to the entire phrase, which means that even the faith to trust in Jesus is a gift of God. It's something that God puts in your heart. It's the gift of God, not of works, none of it's of works, so that nobody has any reason to boast at all. Your salvation from start to finish belonged to God. I've told you sometimes we get this idea of salvation like, you know, um, we're drowning in our sea of sin and death and uh, we look off into the distance and there's Jesus in a lifeboat and we think that's my savior there. And so we swim over to him and we're like, Jesus, save me. And he throws us a life raft and he pulls us in the boat and hallelujah, Jesus, what a say. That's not the right picture of salvation. The better picture of salvation is you were floating face down, already dead in the water and Jesus picked you up, put you in the life raft and brought you back to life. That's what Paul's saying in Ephesians 2. It is entirely by grace. Every single bit of it was a gift of God, not of work, so that nobody can boast. You see, we're not saved because of how committed we were to Jesus. Nope, all of us were Judas. We're saved because of how committed Jesus was to us. Hallelujah, thank God. Okay, that's your first question. Judas is us. Number two, why did Judas betray Jesus? Why did he betray Jesus? Short answer, he was disappointed with him. Judas had expectations about the Messiah that Jesus didn't meet. Now, again, I want you to see, Judas is not alone in this. All the disciples had problems with Jesus. They all doubted him in this way. Peter, you know, Peter got angry with Jesus. I'm like, Jesus, you're confusing. I don't know what you're doing. Jesus, why aren't you doing this? In fact, got so, you know, kind of virulent in in his arguing with Jesus that Jesus finally calls him Satan. I mean, I don't know, in Jesus' list of insults, that's got to be one of the highest ones, right? You know, when he calls you Satan, that's like as bad as it gets. That's Peter. Um, John the Baptist, whom Jesus thought of as the greatest preacher ever to live, right? John the Baptist, Luke chapter 7, goes through a time after he baptizes Jesus where he says, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Because all these expectations I had about what you were going to do, you're not doing. Um, Thomas, you know, obviously was like that. Um, Or here's one of my favorite uh, examples of this. Um, That shows you all the disciples are in this category. Um, Matthew 28, after Jesus had resurrected from the dead and spent 40 days with the disciples, eating, talking, walking, showing them his nails and his nail scars and his hands and his feet. He says he brings them out to the the mount where he's going to ascend. He stands on the mountain 
and he begins to ascend. This is Matthew 28, 16. He begins to ascend. Matthew 28, 17. And when they saw him ascending, some worshiped, but others doubted. I'm like, guys, he's floating in the air. And they're like, ah, I don't know. I saw the David Blaine special. I'm not really sure if this is like legit right here. How could you doubt at that moment when he's floating in the air? Here's why. It is because what Jesus was leaving undone on earth was so confusing to them, they still couldn't get their minds around it. Why were the Romans still in charge? Why was evil Rome still oppressing the Jew? Why was there still injustice? If he's really the Messiah, why is the world such a mess? You see, those questions are legitimate questions. And they're questions that all of the disciples of Jesus had. Like most Jews, Judas had assumed a couple of things about the Messiah. Number one, Judas wanted a Messiah who would punish evil and reward the righteous. Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah that would deliver them from the oppression of Rome and punish the wicked. And there's nothing wrong with that. We are right to cry out to God for deliverance from oppression and injustice. But Jesus shows up with a different agenda the first time Jesus announces his Messiahship. You know what it is? Luke chapter four, Luke chapter four, Jesus is, um, you know, 30 years old and he's in a, he's in a, uh, let's see, a church service, a synagogue service at his local synagogue. And there was a point in the service at which they allowed people, they just had something on their heart to come up and talk to everybody. Um, and so Jesus stands up and walks forward and says, I've got a word. And they're like, okay, you know, and he walks up and he takes the Isaiah scroll and he opens it up to Isaiah 61. And he reads this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And all the Jews said, amen, that's us. We're the oppressed. We're the discriminated against. And one day Messiah is going to come and he's going to whoop honey or whatever. They all spoke well of him. They all patted him on the back and were like, man, you're going to make a great preacher one day. And we really love to hear you preach because you just make us feel good and uplifted. All right, so far so good. But then he goes on in his sermon, his sermon, Luke says, goes on like this. Um, in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land, Elijah was sent to none of them, none of the Israelites, only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. In other words, there were lots of people who were hungry during that time period, but God only sent Elijah to do a miracle in the home of a Gentile woman who was not even a Jew. He goes on, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only named in the Syrian. Lots of people had leprosy during the time of Elisha, but Elisha only healed one of them, and it was the head of the enemy army. It would be like today if there was a, a nationwide plague and all of our children were dying and God chooses the only person that he heals is the grandson of Osama bin Laden. Well, they weren't expecting this turn in Jesus' sermon, so all of a sudden Jesus starts making the point that instead of showing up to punish evil and reward the insiders, Jesus came preaching grace to outsiders and that made everybody mad. Because when you think you're a rule follower, nothing makes you matter than when God rewards those who don't follow the rules as well as you think you do. And so the crowd listening to the sermon that morning went from patting Jesus on the back to, they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. 
so that they could throw him down off of the cliff. Now, I've gotten some bad reactions from sermons that I've preached before. I've never had that happen. I mean, I've, I've got a few nasty emails, but nobody's ever tried to throw me off a cliff. Well, because my, I have no idea what to do with this verse. Verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. I don't even know what that means. I mean, is that like a Jedi mind trick? He was like, I'm not the droid you were looking for. I, I don't know what it means, but he just walked through their midst and said, this is not the time for me to die. Jesus' message was that all of us, at our very best, fall far short and need a Savior. We are all alike wicked before God, both oppressor and oppressed. Both of them have sinful hearts that need to be redeemed. We're all outsiders who need to be rescued. Thank God he extends grace to outsiders because that's the only kind of people that there are. Thank God he saves really bad people because there are no other kind of people. But Judas didn't want to see this about himself. Judas preferred to see himself as somebody who was better than other people, somebody worthy of respect, somebody who was in the upper crust of morality and worthy to be rewarded, so he missed the message of a crucified Messiah altogether. You know who did get this? You know who did understand it? The woman who came in to anoint Jesus. She was so overwhelmed with love and gratefulness to him that she washed his feet with her tears. In a similar situation with another woman, Jesus explained, the reason that people like her love me so much is that they realize how much they've been forgiven of. What he, what he meant was not that she actually had been forgiven of more than the disciples, but she realized she had been forgiven of a lot, and that made her love Jesus. You know what that means? The reason some of you are so, are so apathetic when it comes to love for Jesus, the reason your love for Jesus is so weak is you have such little awareness of how desperate your condition was when Jesus saved you. So number one, Judas wanted a Messiah who would punish evil and reward the righteous. The woman understood the Messiah that came to bestow grace because there were none righteous. Number two, Judas wanted a Messiah who would bestow power and riches. He was looking for the Messiah to give him the good life. The woman understood that knowing Jesus was the good life. Judas's reaction to the woman anointing Jesus is very revealing. He thinks that the perfume poured out on Jesus was wasted. And in one sense, y'all, in one sense, he was right. I mean, the Puritan, Jonathan, uh, Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards said that the thing that is so shocking about Mary's act was its total uselessness. I mean, think about it. It was useless to Jesus. He didn't need that expensive of an anointing. It smelled good, what, for a few hours? And then it was totally gone, $10,000 down the drain for just a smell for a while? It was useless to Jesus. It was useless to Mary. He, 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 Mary did not need, need to earn favor from Jesus. You know how we know that? Um, Mary was the sister of Lazarus who Jesus raised from the dead. And John 11 makes very clear that Jesus loved that family and was very committed to them and had promised them that he would be with them forever and they would spend forever in heaven with him. So they've already got that promise. So it's not like she's doing this so that she can get in better with Jesus. She's already got his favor. No, that act only served one purpose, and that was for her to declare her love for Jesus and to put his worth to her on display so that she could say as loudly as she could, you are worthy, and you're worth 10 billion bottles of these kinds of perfume. Y'all see, and therein you see the difference between Mary and Judas. For Judas, Jesus was just a means to an end. He's thinking, if I follow Jesus, then he will give me power and riches. 
But for Mary, Jesus was the end. Knowing him was the riches. Judas served Jesus to get things. Mary gave up anything in order to know more of Jesus. Judas says, you know what? If Jesus is not going to get me riches and power and health and wealth, then what good is he? Mary says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He watched it white as snow. See, Judas thought of Jesus as useful. Mary thought of him as beautiful. Something that is useful, you use as a helpful tool to obtain something else you really want. So if Jesus is useful to you, then he's useful as means to heaven, a good marriage, health, career success. But something that's beautiful to you, you love in and for itself, right? A tire iron is useful to me. So I keep one in my car at all times. It's useful to me because of what it can do for me in a moment that I need it, right? And if it breaks, I throw it away. My wife and my children are beautiful to me. I don't keep them in my life because of what they can do for me. I'm not like, I'm gonna keep you around as long as you hold out the promise that one day you'll be able to earn me you know, several million dollars. That would be a nice side benefit, but that's not why I keep them around, right? I keep them around because they are beautiful to me. Judas's find Jesus to be useful. Mary's find him beautiful. That means that you can tell whether you are a Judas or a Mary by how you respond when life disappoints you. When life disappoints you, if you say, God, this may not be my preference. And this hurts like crazy. And I don't want this. But God, if you can use this to help me know you more, and if you can use this for your glory to help others know you more and others see your worth, I'll gladly take it because knowing you is a better treasure than an easy life. If that's what you say in the midst of suffering, then you are a Mary. In fact, maybe write it down this way. How you respond to suffering and pain is the measure of your understanding and your embrace of the gospel. You see, if you get angry with God when you go through a time where life disappoints you and you say, God, you're not keeping up your end of the deal. God, if you don't start giving me what I want, health, a boyfriend, a raise, whatever, then Jesus, maybe you're not really worth following. If that's the attitude of your heart, you're probably Judas. Jesus is only a means to an end for you. See, I've got a feeling that there's a number of you listening to me at one of our campuses right now that you're at a crossroads in your life. Lots of things are going wrong in your life and times are hard. And you've asked God to help you out, but things are not resolving yet. And you're like, you're like, God, are you even there? God, you feel confused. You even feel angry at God. God, why is this happening to my parents? God, why is this happening to me? And you're asking this weekend, Jesus, are you even really worth following? And I want to tell you with Mary, he is, but not because of the things he can do for you tomorrow. He's worthy because of who he is that you will possess for all of eternity. I got a letter from a, um, a summit member who was telling me that this year she was unexpectedly diagnosed with a very serious type of cancer that caused her whole life to change. And she had to go through a number of chemo treatments. And she said, at first, I struggled with anger to God because why was he letting this happen? And I had so many things I wanted to accomplish. She said, but you know what happened? She said, I realized that God answered a lot of prayers I've been praying over the years for him to give me joy. Because when he had finally rattled some of my foundations, he let me learn to have joy in him. 
And I've been praying for a lot of people in my life to come to know Jesus, and I wasn't getting anywhere with them, but all of a sudden through this cancer, I've had a chance to talk to a bunch of them at a whole different level about who Jesus is. And she says, I even led one of them to Christ on my porch just the other day. And then she concluded her note to me by saying this. She says, hard does not equal bad. Hard is hard. I wouldn't choose hard for anything, but it was a good thing because it changed my heart in good ways. And knowing Jesus is worth going through all these hard things in the world. That is the heart of a Mary. Knowing Jesus is worth all going through all these hard things, and I would take him over everything. Y'all, in summation, Judas represents a religious approach to God. I serve God to get things from God, and I expect to be rewarded for my behavior. Mary is the person who understands the gospel. I deserve nothing. But God has given me everything in Christ, and Christ is a treasure worth losing everything else for. Y'all, the praise that Jesus gives to Mary is incredible. Her sacrifice meant so much to him that he said that her story is going to be a permanent fixture in the gospel story that shows us what a gospel response actually looks like. In fact, I like to think of um, when Mary, when Jesus left that dinner and went to the Garden of Gethsemane and then went on into the trial that night and then was beaten and then ultimately crucified, that, that the, 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 the scent of that perfume from his hair and his feet was still probably filling his nostrils. Right, that sweet smell, still bringing joy to his heart. In fact, I wonder if that's what the writer of Hebrews is referring to when he says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy of redeeming Mary, the joy of, of being in love with people like Mary was what brought joy to his heart. It was so meaningful to him that his praise for it was the highest he gives to anybody in the Bible. The praise for her is incredible, but the verdict on Judas is devastating. Y'all, it still sends a chill through my body. It had been better for him had he not even been born. You know, the only way that statement is true is if he's talking about Judas going to hell forever. If Judas was just annihilated, if he just ceased to exist, then that statement wouldn't make any sense. Because if, you know, at the end of our lives, if we're not Christians, if we just start, stop existing, you'd say, well, at least you got to experience life one time. At least you got to experience some good things in life. I'm sure Judas had some good things that he experienced. But the only way that statement is true is if Judas went to hell forever, and in 2018, he's still there. What a terrible thing for the Lord Jesus Christ to say about your life. Yet that is God's verdict on every Judas. That is every person who does not surrender fully to Jesus without condition. That is his verdict on those who do not consider him the ultimate treasure, on those who will not give up everything to follow him. It's like Puritan Jeremy Taylor always said, he said, you know, God threatens terrible things for those who refuse to be insanely happy in him. Is this you? What a terrible thing to say about you. It'd be better for you, for you never to have even been born. We're going to end this service by taking the Lord's table together because that's what the followers of Jesus did here in this moment that we're looking at. After Judas left, after Judas left, they took the Lord's table. And I'm going to show you that the Lord's table actually represented the last offer that Jesus gave to Judas to turn from what he was doing and to embrace Jesus and to receive him. So I'm going to ask at all of our campuses, I'm going to go ahead and ask the, those who distribute the bread and the cup, they're going to come, they're going to begin to pass out those things. Now listen, what's interesting about this, as they're coming, is that Judas was not present for this part. 
Jesus waited till after Judas left. And one of the things that shows us is that this is a celebration only for believers. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Only believers should take of the bread and the cup, which means if you're not a fully committed follower of Jesus, you should just let it go right past you. Okay? Um, this is very, is very clear on that. But here's what's amazing. Jesus did offer to Judas, we saw it, a portion of the Passover bread. You see, right before Judas left, they were at a point in the Passover called the Korak. And the Korak was where they took this piece of bread and they dipped it in the bitter herbs, which represented captivity to sin. And you would dip it and it represented, like most things in the Passover, God's deliverance from the bitterness of sin. Here's the kicker, listen. The Jewish tradition was that the host of the Passover would offer this piece of bread that had been dipped in the bitter herb, he would offer it to somebody who was very close to him, very special to him, usually a child. And what you were saying to them when you offered this one piece of bread to them is you are very special to me. You're very special to me and God's salvation is for you. Jesus of all the disciples, he could have given it to, he offered that piece of bread that said, you're special and I love you. He offered that to Judas. And what he was saying is Judas, you don't have to do this. Judas, you're special to me. Judas, I'm gonna die for you if you will receive me. And Judas stood up, rejected Jesus's offer and walked out. You see, if you're not a believer, while people around you are gonna grab a hold of this bread and cup, Jesus is actually offering the same thing to you. He is offering the same thing to you. He is not offering you this bread and cup, but he's holding out the offer of salvation to you if you'll just receive it. If you're willing to say, Jesus, I'll surrender everything to you without condition, and I'll, Jesus, I'll take you as the ultimate treasure. He is ready to save you. So as others are taking the bread and the cup, I want you to receive Christ as your Savior if you never have. What are you going to do? Are you going to make Judas's mistake, or are you going to take it? That choice is up to you. The bread and the cup are symbols that Jesus didn't just die for us. He died instead of us. Before we take these things together, I want us to pause for a minute. I want us to just take a, a slightly deeper look at this reminder. And then I'm gonna come back right after this um, that I'm gonna show you here. And then I'll lead us in taking the, the bread and the cup together. Does your mind ever go back to the first Passover? When the blood of the lamb was now spread over the doorway. God's wrath now passed over his people. Christ will call his disciples together and offer them his body, his blood. Drawing the twelve around him, he would take the bread and bless it. Take, eat, this is my body, he told them. His body, the body of the only one sinless man. If the Passover meal is all about sharing the lamb, then here's the question. Where is it? See, Christ was the lamb. Jesus would be crushed, broken, instead of me. Such powerful words coming from the Son of the living God. Jesus, our King, coming to save us, right? Surely he wouldn't be speaking of death, at least not his death, for he was supposed to defeat death. And take the cup, and gave thanks, and passed it to each one, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus will be drained, he will be empty, completely poured out instead of me. 
a God ever faithful to his covenant, Christ offers his disciples, he offers you and me every drop, every ounce of life. But if only they could understand that cost, if only we could, can you comprehend it? The weight of his body, the, the magnitude of his blood, crushed, broken, poured out for many. Not just for me, but instead of me. Almost as he's done now speaking, he warns his disciples that one of you will fall away. Peter says, though they will all fall away because of you, I will never. Careful, Peter. You too are capable of running away in fear, denying him. Christ says, truly, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter's indignant. Christ allows his body to be broken, the blood to be poured out. In spite of it all, Jesus will be betrayed. Betrayed by friends, betrayed by the world, betrayed even by his own father instead of me.